On this prequel episode, we've got our Solaris fan poll follow-up, we're learning about Mikhail Enda, and previewing The NeverEnding Story. Hello and welcome back to the Film Slits Podcast, where we talk about movies that are based on books. Let's get right into it. We've got our patron shoutouts. Uh, no new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners, and they are Max Winters, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter, Kira Knightley is my favorite atheist, and Alina Dolutkalova. Thank you all so very much for supporting us. Uh, this next one is not a Academy Award winning request, but we have had a run of them, and I'm sure we have more coming up. We do have more coming, yeah. Fan. Fantastic. All right, let's go ahead and see what everybody had to say about our most recent Academy Award winner pick, Solaris. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. So we had less feedback for this one than we had for the last couple episodes, which, makes which sense. I totally anticipated. Yeah, it's not a particularly like super popular. Yeah, not super well known. No, um, we actually had no feedback on Facebook. Wow. Zero votes or anything. Um our Solaris posts on Facebook did pretty poorly. I'm hoping it's just because it's not super well known yeah. and not something with the algorithm burying us. I, I also I, I realized that so the way we do the posts on Facebook, I don't know why I've never thought of this or mentioned this. The way we do the polls on Facebook is with the like image that has the right. Facebook can recognize those and buries those. Uh, do they doing that now? They've been doing uh, that for years. Have they? Yes. Because I was having so much trouble with their polling yeah. system that I switched to the pictures. I guess um, I'll switch back to their polls. I don't know. I think switching back to their poll would be the best option because Ugh. they bury those. They don't like those. Uh, the algorithm does not like those like mate like, like gaming the system um, polls. Just letting you know. I remember well, that being discussed when I worked at a news station. Okay, Facebook, <laughs> listen up. It I used to not be the case. I but. switched from your polling system because I could never get them to work. So maybe you should, should fix your poll system, Zuckerberg. On Twitter, we had three votes for the book and two for the movie. And like five in the I didn't watch or read right. it <laughs> category. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but we did get a couple of comments. Shelby Suderman at Shelby Suderman said the book because I love starting with Kelvin arriving at the station. I prefer the way the book unravels the mystery of what's going on. And I enjoyed learning about the ocean. That said, I really liked how the corridors on the station were designed in the movie. I agree. Yeah. So that's, all that's stuff we talked about. Similar, yeah, similar to what you said. Mm hmm. Matt Nelson, large cartoonist at large, that's at Matt W. Nelson, said, haven't read or seen yet, but I just wanted to note that you were the second literary podcast I listened to this week that involved a book where a creepy copy is made of a man's wife. And I wanted to go ahead and read this one because it turns out that the other book was Ready Player Two, yep. which I thought was really funny. Yep. <laughs> Boy, I wonder if they're going to make a movie. The first one, I think, made a ton of money. Did so it? I'm assuming they're going to. I think it did. Yeah. I mean, it had a huge budget, so I don't know how profitable like how it was. It stacked up, yeah. But it, I'm pretty sure it made a significant amount of money. So. Yay. <laughs> we shall see if they make a second one and if we're going to have to do it. <laughs> Because I have not heard great things about that book. (laughs) 
Yeah, literally everything I've heard about that book has been yep. awful. Yeah. And our last comment on Twitter was from Kelly Napier at Standby for Live, who said, I haven't seen or read, and to be honest, I probably won't. It's just not my sci-fi vibe. That being said, I still listen to the episode. Y'all have become such a steady presence in my week that I couldn't miss out on my favorite commute pod, even if I didn't know what you were talking about. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I thought that was really nice. Thank you, Kelly. It is nice because, you know, there is... It is t- that is one of the, the nature of our podcast that we've known since the beginning is that mm-hmm. it's going to have, by its very nature, fluctuating yes, listenership because of the premise. It's like if you've never seen or read, it's going to be much more, you're going to be much right. less inclined yeah. to. Yeah, I think you're going to, I think it's, I I like to think that we're charming and entertaining enough that you could still listen to an episode and enjoy it. Right. But you're getting much less out of it yes. if you haven't seen or read. Yeah. Um, I think I very much, yeah, is the case. I mean, there are podcasts that I love a lot, like like Philosophers in Space, that occasionally I won't listen to. Mm-hmm. I listen to most of them still because just to listen to the philosophy part, because that's really irrelevant on whether or not you've seen or read the book mm-hmm. or, or, you know, or watched whatever the thing is. But even then, there are ones where I won't just because, yeah, I haven't seen or read whatever they're talking about. And right. sometimes it's because I, don't, I want to and don't want it to be spoiled or whatever. But other times it's just like, yeah. You know, and, and that's, you know, there are plenty, there are, there are other podcasts like that that I really like where that's the case. But so, yeah, I think ours is, is tough in mm-hmm. that regard. Yeah, it's tough in that regard. And I think, too, we have a slight disadvantage in that we haven't limited ourselves to any kind of genre. So we're getting fluctuation in, yes. like, the type of audience. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, we got, we, we range so widely from, you know, incredibly popular, like, fantasy or, you know, sci-fi yeah. or, or or pop novels or whatever to to way more obscure yeah. things that people haven't don't you know don't know or don't care about. So yeah, it's just our our listenership does vary, not not a crazy amount, but it does. And actually, the number this Solaris did good numbers, like mm-hmm. relatively speaking. Um, so either people had seen it or also you know I don't know how much this happens if somebody's looking for something Solaris related and. There's nothing else out there, right? Like, and for that person, yeah, we're, this episode yeah. is a goldmine. Yeah, and that's what I, I do think is nice is that we, we probably have a lot of people who listen to a couple episodes, one or two episodes, who are like, ah, I'm really yeah. interested in that thing. I love Solaris, and I've never heard anybody talk about it or whatever. So, occasionally, I do like I'll see somebody follow us on social media, especially on Instagram. Um, where I can tell, like, oh, you're following us because we're talking about this one this specific, one specific thing. thing, yeah. And then I'm always like, I wonder if they just unfollow us when the content changes from yeah, what they're looking for. Speaking of Instagram, though, uh, we had four votes for the book and one for the movie on Instagram. I did not hear from the person who voted for the movie, though. I voted for the book on Instagram, I believe. <laughs> I think that's where I voted. Uh, But we did get a comment from the leap underscore 77 who said, I have to agree with Brian on this one. I love the movie and Tarkovsky in general. I just think he stretched it a little too long. I think all Tarkovsky's movies are long from my (laughs) my knowledge, but maybe this one more so than others. I haven't seen any of his other films. Maybe there's just more like filler in this one. Potentially. I don't know. And we have a brand new segment um, here today 
Uh, we have a Patreon segment. We don't ask for votes on Patreon. So, no, but occasionally people um, but occasionally will comment. Occasionally people the... will comment. Um, and we did get a comment from our Academy Award winning patron who requested Solaris, mm-hmm. Eli Youngs. So I wanted to go ahead and read their comment. And Eli said, thanks for taking my request. This was a great episode and I'm glad you loved the book and seemed to mostly enjoy the movie experience despite its length and what it cut. Honestly, I was expecting you to either adore the movie or absolutely hate it. No, landed somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Honestly, I prefer the movie. I love so many of the themes and ideas in the book, but it feels too unfocused and meandering for the fairly simple story it tells. There's so much exposition about the station, all the weird behaviors of the planet, and the dozens of scientists who came before, and to me, these endless details feel like gilding the lily of a great premise. The movie is much more thematically and emotionally focused on the existential questions I found to be the most interesting parts of the book. I love the decision to bring in Calvin's family and start with him and Burton on Earth, which turns the book's exposition dumps into something more emotional and human. I think the new ending is a beautiful and haunting capstone that sticks with me more than anything in Lem's novel. And while I absolutely see why some people find the movie interminably boring, I love losing myself in its meditative pace, although I won't defend that absurdly long driving scene. <sighs> that said, I agree. I'd love to see Denny Villanueva's take on Solaris. Yeah, I, I that was an interesting comment. I did uh, disagree with slightly with the um, the part where they were talking about how uh, there's so much exposition about the station, all the weird behaviors of the planet, and the dozens of t- scientists who came before uh, and found that sort of unfocused and meandering and gilding the lily. And I, I actually loved all that stuff, kind of loved that weird mm-hmm. meandering part. Um, there were times towards the three-quarter mark where I found it a little tedious. Um, but in general, I really I found those parts super fascinating and interesting and world building. And uh, the other thing, uh, Eli also did have their take on the ending so i wanted to mention that Mm -hmm. they had a uh they think you know like their take on what they thought the ending meant the island is a manifest manifestation created by the ocean after getting kelvin's encephalogram and more fully understanding his thoughts it's specifically recreating his memory of the day we saw at the beginning since the bonfire is still smoldering with the papers he burned in this recreation it's raining inside the house instead of outside which is one of those errors the planet makes as it attempts to understand earth similar to how hari's dress couldn't be actually unfastened uh the shot of kelvin kneeling in front of his dad at the end is a direct visual reference to the return of the prodigal son he's overcome with guilt and emotion and repenting and the implication is that his father will accept and forgive him i don't think there's a specific intra-family conflict we're meant to pick up on i don't even think that this moment is specific to his father i think the only reason it's his dad instead of harry burton or his mother is for the prodigal son imagery and the point is a more general guilt and repentance about all the ways kelvin's hurt people and push them away uh, the island and Kelvin's father are manifestations from Solaris based on Kelvin's thoughts at the end, but it's ambiguous whether this Kelvin is also the ocean's manifestation or if it's the real Kelvin. Uh, one, maybe Kelvin went back to Earth and we're seeing the ocean's understanding of his intention to seek out forgiveness and redemption when he returns. Uh, two, maybe Kelvin did not go back to Earth and we're seeing his redemption and forgiveness in the imperfect world Solaris makes for him, uh, which is still a metal, metaphor for his mental state in any case uh, because he knows he won't be able to receive it on Earth. I think this ending is the only reason anyone compares the film to Inception. It's a similar, similarly ambiguous ending about whether Kelvin will actually get to redemption or whether he has to settle for a sim- simulacrum of it. Uh, so I think that's a good take on the ending. Yeah. Um, and it definitely do- doesn't require the sort of potential, like my, my sort of interpretation requires a little bit of extra 
a little bit of an extra leap. A, a little bit of an extra leap that's maybe not there. But I do still think there's, I don't know, I have to watch it again to see. Uh, I think there may be more to it. But I, I do like that take. And the thing I thought was interesting, uh, it's actually not the only thing that reminds me. It does remind me of Inception. Obviously, the end of Inception, if you haven't seen it, is similarly like, oh, did he actually get home and, you know, mm-hmm. or not type of, type of thing. The thing that I was going to say is that uh, the other part of to me that reminded me of Inception is the part where his partner's there, but there's something wrong with them. His dead partner is there, but there's mm-hmm. some, like that mm-hmm. whenever he's in the dream world, um, Mal, I think is her name. Yes. Yeah. Keeps showing up and she's like off. Yeah. Yeah. That that element also reminded me of Inception. So. Yeah. Oh, and the floating scene in the movie. Mm. Oh, yeah. That was the other thing where there's some floating. <laughs> that was like maybe the other thing that people could have pointed to. I know we talk about this kind of thing a lot on this podcast, but I do, I always find it really interesting when people have the exact opposite feeling that we did about like a very specific part of a book or movie. Yeah. I, I just think it's so endlessly fascinating how the experience of, being told a story is not universal. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we had very different ideas of the, you know. And I, I wouldn't say it was like my favorite part of the book was all that stuff, but I thought it was a super fascinating part, whereas mm-hmm. Eli found it less, very much less so. Yeah, which is, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's just more evidence that <laughs> all of our brains work a little bit different. So uh, what was the final verdict from the... Vote. All right, so the listener poll's winner was the book with seven votes to the movie's three. There you go. All right, let's go ahead and learn a little bit about Mikhail Enda. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So I'm 99% sure I'm pronouncing his name right. I found some, I found some old interviews. They were all in German, so I couldn't actually watch them. Um, but I found one where um, an announcer was, like, announcing that he was coming in. So I'm pretty sure I've got Mikhail Enda correct. So Mikhail Enda was a German writer of fantasy and children's fiction, best known for his epic fantasy, The NeverEnding Story, mm-hmm. which we're talking about. Um, other famous works include his fantasy novel Momo and the children's novel Jim Button and Luke the Engine Driver. So Enda is one of the most popular and famous German authors of the 20th century, mostly due to the enormous success of his children's fiction, but he was not strictly a children's writer. He wrote books for adults as well. Um, His writing overall has been described as a surreal mixture of reality and fantasy which I am a little ways into the never-ending story now, and I can totally see what that (laughs) is talking about. Um, Enda was born in 1929 in a small town in Bavaria. Uh, I don't actually know if it was a small town. My brain just put that in there. (laughs) Born in a town in Bavaria. Uh, He was an only child. His father was surrealist painter Edgar Enda. When he was six years old, the family moved to an artist's community in Munich, so he grew up in a rich artistic and literary environment that would go on to influence his writing. Now, if you've been doing the math, um, you know 
moved to Munich in 1935 not great means that his childhood was marked by the horrors yeah. of the Second World not War. Great yeah, not great timing. Yeah, not great timing. I mean, I, I don't know how much better it would have gone Bavaria, in Bavaria, yeah. but certainly Munich was not a great place to be moving to. Um, in 1936, his father's work was declared degenerate and banned by the Nazi party. Um, Enda was 12 when the first air raid took place over Munich, and he witnessed the 1943 Hamburg bombing. Um, he was eventually sent away from Munich back to the town he'd been born in, in Bavaria. So, assuming, from the sounds of it then, that, that the town in Bavaria was potentially a much smaller town that would not have seen much I would guess so, yeah. Like um, bombings or anything. Yeah. Um, it was, I think it was like a mountain yeah, town. So. Not, not much of a target for... Yeah, well, not like, not like Munich. Not like Munich, yeah. <laughs> um, So in 1945, um, young Germans, uh, as young as 14, were being drafted into the militia as kind of a last-ditch effort by the Nazi party. Enda was also drafted, but he tore up his call papers and joined a Bavarian resistance movement um, that was dedicated to sabotaging the SS's effort to defend Munich. Um, he served as a courier for that group, for the remainder of the war. Nice. After the war ended, Endo was able to go back to school and finish his education. He also began to write at that time, mostly short stories and poems. He later decided that he wanted to be a playwright, but finances were going to keep him from attending university. In 1948, he auditioned um, for the Otto Flackenberg... Falkenberg? Falkenberg, Falkenberg yeah. School of the Performing Arts in Munich. Um, he was granted a two-year scholarship. Um, and after leaving drama school, he spent about a decade working in theater, sometimes as an actor, but mostly as a writer. In the late 1950s, Enda began writing his first novel, Jim Button and Luke the Engine Driver. Hmm. Obviously, that's the English translation yeah. of the title. Um, he sent the manuscript to about 10 different publishers, but they all responded that it was unsuitable for our list or too long for children. However, it eventually did find a home and was published as two separate novels, Jim Button and Luke the Engine Driver in 1960 and Jim Button and the Wild 13 in 1962. That first Jim Button novel was an immediate success and it launched his career as a novelist. Enda often expressed frustration over being perceived as a, children's, as a children's writer exclusively. He has stated, It is for this child in me and in all of us that I tell my stories, and my books are for children between 80 and 8 years. Mikhail Enda passed away in 1995, but is still considered a giant in the children's fantasy genre. His stories often invited the reader to take an interactive role. They often included themes related to economic reform, anti-fascism, and the loss of fantasy and magic in the modern world. And I wanted to close this out with a direct quote from uh, the entry on Mikhail Enda on tvtropes.com because I found it incredibly hilarious. Like, I feel like I really felt the mood of whoever wrote this entry. Here's the quote. When he was alive, many left-leaning critics criticized him for writing escapist and unpolitical novels, which was completely missing the point and utterly inaccurate. 
Fantastic. Uh, all right. Speaking of his novels, we're talking about very, one very specific, his most famous novel, The Neverending Story. What is the secret of this enchanted book? What wonders are hidden within its pages? What magical spell does it cast on all who read it? What is the secret of the never-ending story? But that's impossible! All right, so this is a children's fantasy novel, first published in 1979. Uh, The first English translation was done by Ralph Mannheim, and it was published in 1983. Enda's initial idea for this story was fairly simple. It was literally a young boy picks up a book, finds himself literally inside the story, and has trouble getting out. However, the story grew as he wrote, and Enda actually ended up asking his publisher for an extension on the due date for the first draft of what he initially thought would be Mm -hmm. a pretty simple story. The original edition of the book was printed using red and green text, red writing to represent the storylines which take place in the human world, and green writing to represent the events taking place in Fantastica. The illustrations... um, that began each chapter were drawn in both colors to illustrate how the two worlds were intertwining. And then they realized there are colorblind people in the world and were like, <laughs> this is a nightmare. <laughs> also, even if you weren't colorblind, I would not. I, w- I don't think I would I like would that. I would not want to like to read between going back between red and green text back <laughs> and forth. No, thank you. But wait, there's more. The book was also initially only printed as a hardcover, not a paperback, because Enda wanted the book to look as much as possible like the book from the book. Nice. He also supposedly pitched the idea of a leather-bound volume inlaid (laughs) with Mother of Pearl with brass fasteners, sending his publisher into a panic thinking of production costs. Which, like, and, and knowing that, the red and green text makes sense to me. I'm like, okay, that's the compromise. Yeah. <laughs> because it would already be expensive to print an entire book in color ink. Yeah. Yeah, especially alternating color yeah. ink. Like, yeah, that's... Yeah. That's crazy. And apparently he wanted, like, something very ornate because he wanted it to literally look like I the mean, book from the I'm book. I'm into that idea. I'm into it, too. You would have to do, like, a limited... You obviously couldn't Oh, yeah, you'd have to do a limited run. And I, I didn't check, but I feel like that probably exists now. Like, yeah. you can buy, like, a special edition that's super fancy. Or there are, like, custom-made versions. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that people have bound it, like, custom... You know. Yeah. Or something. The copy that I have is a very cheap paperback. Yeah. It's very flimsy. If you order from Amazon, keep that in mind. You're getting something very flimsy. So The NeverEnding Story was an immediate success. It was number one on Germany's bestseller list for 113 weeks, and it remained on the list for 332 weeks. Early reviews of the English language edition included positive reviews in Library Journal and Kirkus Review, with the latter calling The NeverEnding Story an appealing, delicately wrought, engrossing adventure for children of all ages. The novel has remained most successful in Germany and in Japan, 
while the 1984 film tends to be more well-known among English-speaking audiences mm-hmm. than the novel is, which I, I'm not sure I knew this was a novel until fairly recently. Yeah, I don't think I knew originally for sure. Um, just so people know if they want to look, uh, Etsy, $130. You can get the movie version of the book but printed in the red and green ink oh of the original, but the, it's, it's got the, I assume that, cause that's like what it looks like in the movie. I think so. Yeah. Um, but it's like leather bound with the metal inlays and the, whatever that thing's called the, mm-hmm. the necklace, the, the little, it's got a name and now I can't remember is what it, it is. It's RN in the book. Yes. Yes. There you go. So there you go. Look on Etsy, $130 to $150. That's I mean, all that's, multiple. That's not even that bad. No, I saw a whole, there's a whole bunch of different ones that, yeah, range from 100 to 150 it looks like. Hmm. Um, so as of 2010, The Never Ending Story has been translated into 36 languages and sold more than 8 million copies worldwide. Um, aside from the films, The Never Ending Story has also been adapted for the stage, for television, and as a few different video games. It also inspired a series of tribute novels by different German authors called Legends of Fantastica. Um, approved fan fiction. In the course of interviews and panel discussions, Michael Endo was often asked about the meaning of the never-ending story, but he was always reluctant to offer an interpretation. Um, so readers eager to know whether their interpretations were correct had to content himself with his usual answer that a good interpretation was a correct interpretation, regardless of whether it mirrored the author's intentions. So he's big in the whole death of the author. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's basically that, just that kind of, yeah, yeah that the, the reader interpretation trumps author intent. Yeah. And I think, but, and specifically his point being that as long as it, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously, you know, it's like there, I'm sure there are interpretations out there that he's like, no, that's no, but sure. That tracks. It works. All right. Let's go ahead and learn a little bit about the never ending story. The movie. You will enter a world where a young boy's imagination becomes a vivid reality. The world of Atreyu and Artax, the rock biter, and a good and kind gnome. A world that is vast and eternal, treacherous and dazzling, unforgettable and free. For anyone who's ever made a wish, believed in a fantasy, or had a dream, this is The NeverEnding Story. The NeverEnding Story is a 1984 film directed by Wolfgang Peterson, uh, also known for Das Boot, Outbreak, Troy, Air Force One, and The Perfect Storm. So, uh has a fair share of well-known movies there. Das Boot is a uh, Academy Award-winning submarine movie, German submarine movie, very famous. Interesting. Um, but uh, obviously, those other ones are a little more blockbustery popular, uh, which I actually didn't know he did Troy. For some reason in my head, like Ridley Scott did Troy, which is not the case. <laughs> Ridley Scott did Gladiator. But uh, it was also written by Wolfgang Peterson and Herman Weigel. Uh, all of the credits for... Uh, Heigl, Weigel, Weigel were like German <laughs> movies and TV shows. This uh-huh. was the only like English language thing he worked on. Uh, it stars Barrett Oliver, Noah Hathaway, 
Tammy Stronach, Patricia Hayes, Sidney Bromlett, Moses Gunn, Gerald McRaney, Alan Oppenheimer, and Deep Roy. The film is 80% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and has a 46 on Metacritic, but that one only has 10 reviews on Metacritic. It has like 50 on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm just going to reiterate, I don't understand Metacritic. I don't understand Metacritic either. Don't get it. Don't get it. It doesn't have many reviews on there, though, to be fair. Interesting. The film had a budget of 25 to $27 million U.S. Uh, it was produced in Germany, so it was a different budget in German Deutschmarks, I guess, at the mm-hmm. time, or no. Yeah, before the Euro. Right. Um, and it made $100 million U.S. at the box office, so very profitable. Uh, so supposedly, Mikhail Enda was paid only $50,000 for the rights to the book and was initially a script, uh, script advisor, script supervisor, but would eventually go on to claim that Peterson, their director and writer Wolfgang Peterson rewrote the script without consulting him, and he was not a fan Mm. of the changes made, so much so that he asked the production be either halted or the film's title be changed. Uh, The film did neither, and he sued them and lost. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He went on to call the film, quote, a gigantic melodrama of kitsch, commerce, plush, and plastic, end quote. So that's Mikhail Enda's thoughts on the film. I kind of love that. After it came out. A German producer, Bernd Eichinger, saw his children reading the book, and they urged him to make the film of it. The majority of the film was shot at Bavaria Studios in Munich, uh, but the real-world school and street scenes at the beginning of the film, and I assume maybe at the end, too, that's, I don't remember exactly all the details, uh, those were filmed in Vancouver, Canada. At the same time of the release, it was, or at the time of the release, it was the most expensive film ever produced outside of the U.S. or the Soviet Union. Wow. Which, the Soviets made a lot of movies. Hmm. Um, very famous, uh, Russia, very, very famous uh, film history um, there, and obviously the U.S., but yeah, outside of that, they had it with this one until, I assume that's been passed by lots of places um, I would assume so. I mean, China has a very robust yeah. movie industry now, as well as many other countries. So, yeah, I'm sure that's been passed. Uh, so Noah Hathaway, who plays uh, Atreyu in the film, almost lost an eye during a fight, the fight with uh, Gamork. I don't know who that is or what that is. Again, it's been either. I, I think I said this before, but I actually don't know if I've ever even seen this one. I watched the second one a ton because I think I just happened to have that one on VHS. I yeah. don't know if I've seen this one. I... I have some vague memories I know I of have, it, but... but I suspect that I might have like started watching it and turned it off. Yeah. I feel like I've seen it at least once, but I watched the second one dozens of times, so mm-hmm. I remember a lot more about that one, which is funny because that one is famously not nearly as yeah. beloved or good as this <laughs> one, but I've seen it a lot of more times. Um, but so apparently while he was fighting the Gamork, one of the claws on the giant paws poked him in the face and almost uh, gouged his eye out. This is oh these are all IMDb trivia facts by the way and this is that was the first one the second one after that is he was hurt twice during the making of the movie but it doesn't include that previous one so he was hurt three times during the making of the movie at least <laughs> uh, one time while learning to ride a horse the horse threw him off and then stepped on him oh god and then while shooting the sequence in the swamp of sadness you know the one his leg got caught on the elevator and he was pulled under the water and apparently was unconscious by the time they got him to the surface so he literally Jeez. almost drowned. Uh, apparently, yeah, uh, filming the song of sadness scene. So, uh, you can ride on Falcor's back, uh, on location at the Bavaria Film Park in Munich, Germany. They have a big 
Falcor there that you can wow. write on. Goals. And so, uh, speaking of the Swamp of Sadness scene, contrary to internet rumor, the horse did not really die during the filming of the scene. Uh, as confirmed by a German magazine interview with Noah Hathaway, shortly after the movie, uh, the horse was given to Noah at the end of filming, but due to the cost of transportation, the need for quarantine and other things, the horse was in, ended up being left behind in Germany because he couldn't, couldn't bring sad. it back with him to the U.S. So the German version does not feature the famous theme song, nor the techno-pop elements composed by Giorgio Moroder. The German version of the film only has the orchestral score. So Interesting. Uh, this is a fun one that I thought was interesting. The metalcore band Atreyu took their name from the film, which... Seems obvious. Yeah, but I always kind of assumed. That. I always assumed they did, but I was a big fan of Lead Sales Paper Anchor back in the day. Uh, that <laughs> album. So there you go. Uh, and after her role as the childlike empress, actress Tammy Stronach did not have another credit until 2008, 24 years after the release of the film. And she only has like three credits total. She's like, was not really an actor. Just did. Yeah. She was like a ballet person, like a dancer, huh. and just did this one movie, and then. Didn't really do any more film, so. Interesting. There you go. There you have it. Uh, where can you watch it? As always, check your local library, or if you still have a local video rental store, check with them. You can stream it if you have HBO Max. With the subscription to HBO Max, you can stream it for free. Or you can rent it on Amazon Prime for $2.99, or from YouTube, Google Play, iTunes, Apple TV Plus, or Vudu, for three ninety nine, I would imagine too that the Amazon Prime one is also three ninety nine. Two ninety nine is usually the SD version. Mm. Usually, um, it'll say from two ninety nine, but that means you can rent the SD version. So if you want to rent the SD version, you can rent it for two ninety nine. My guess would be that the HD version is also three ninety nine. I literally just Google where to stream. I know. I know. I'm just saying. I, every time I've ever seen the price <laughs> on Amazon, it's three ninety nine yeah. for a rental for the HD version. So there um, you go. But as a side note, if you guys ever know that it's like streaming elsewhere and you want to comment yeah. on, on our posts and be like, hey, it's exactly especially here. if you're outside of America. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, we don't have access to like every streaming no. service. And like I, like I said, I literally just Google where can I stream X movie. Right. And hope that I'm getting correct answers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this series. Uh, it's going to be fun. We're having April on for both of them, who has mm -hmm. read before, uh, and she'll be reading the entire thing before we watch the first movie. You will be reading the first half, yes, roughly, before we watch the first movie, and I will not be doing either. And it's going to be a big old fun discussion, breaking down the differences, the changes, and why. Uh, and apparently Mikhail Inda hated him, so we'll see. We'll find if out. If you guys do as well. We'll find out if April and I also feel that it's a giant, <laughs> what was it, gigantic melodrama of kitsch, commerce, plus, plush, and plastic. I feel like I could have <laughs> feelings about that or not, regardless of having read the book. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I can see that from my memory of the second one. But I remember really enjoying the second one as a kid because it was like weird. Mm -hmm. It was just weird being like such a super weird movie. Like it was all like, did uh did Henson do? No, because this was in Germany. Yeah, because there's like a lot of puppets and stuff. Yeah, it's very or, like, like weird it, it looks like sort of Henson-y It type. looks like something from that era of Henson, like yeah. that labyrinth kind of. Uh, it's a got dark a similar, crystal era yeah. type of look. It's like dark and weird and mm -hmm. yeah, kind of spooky. Yeah, I I I'm I'm very interested to watch. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this series. Should be a ton of fun. So come back in one week's time where we'll be joined 
by April Odmansky of the No Such Thing as a Bad Movie podcast to talk about and break down a never-ending story. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And and keep keep being being awesome. awesome.